for watching. My name is Michael Brock. I'm the senior pastor here at Third Presbyterian Church. Third Pres has been a part of the downtown Birmingham community since 1884, and we still today hold to the historic, classic Christian faith. We're glad you've been watching, but we would love to have you join us one Sunday in person. Please see our website for our Sunday morning service times, and I hope to meet you soon. Amen. You may be seated. And if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn in them with me to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, where we'll be looking at verses 18, really through 25 today. And it's page number 939 in your pew Bibles. And the children at this time are free to be dismissed for the children's Bible lesson. This is the fourth sermon in our series where I'm preaching through the book of Romans. I've called the series Knowing and Experiencing the Good News of God. Now, Romans was written by the Apostle Paul, the persecutor turned pastor or pastor slash missionary. It was written about A.D. 57 on what is known as Paul's third missionary journey, a real fancy name like that. Uh, most likely from Corinth in Greece. So Paul was based uh, there uh, in Israel and traveled the Mediterranean world preaching the gospel uh, initially just in Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey, and then he moved into Greece. He wanted to go to Rome, as we see here. He eventually wanted to get to Spain. So those were his plans. And so he wrote this particular letter to the Christians in Rome about A.D. 57 from Corinth in Greece. He had never met the, the Roman Christians, but he'd heard great things about them and their love for the Lord and their growing faith. And so he said very positive things about them. We saw in the first couple of weeks just some introductory comments, not that they're unimportant, but they were more in introductory. Last week, verses 16 and 17 really, um, are, really get to the theme of what this whole book is about, and the rest of the book is sort of an explanation of what verses 16 and 17 are talking about. And verses 16 and 17 are talking about the righteousness of God in the gospel, how God is right to give us the gospel. Today, the section we're looking at is about the righteousness of God in his wrath. So last week it was the righteousness of God in the gospel. Today, the righteousness of God in his wrath. If you're able, please stand for the reading of God's holy word from Romans chapter 1. I'll begin reading in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness Suppress the truth, for what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the mortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, 
because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the, cre the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. This is God's Word. Thanks be to God. Lord, please open our eyes and enable us to behold wonderful things from this, Your Word. We pray through Jesus our Lord. Amen. You may be seated. There's a lot in the news these days about indictments. Uh, I, I get tired personally of kind of reading about the news, so I can't give you any details, but I'll see the headlines that Trump apparently has been indicted. Uh, maybe Biden or Biden's son or Biden's co son's co-workers are going to be indicted. I don't know about all that, but there's just I keep seeing the word indictment in the uh, headlines in the news these days, which, of course, is an indictment. I do know this. It's really a formal, official uh, uh, accusation against someone. It's not no longer just gossip, but it's an authority saying this is what you've done wrong, and uh, and it's and it's going to be taken to the authorities. The the authorities are presenting that. Well, this indictment idea is what essentially Paul is taking up here in Romans chapter one, and he'll keep talking about indictments, or he'll keep this indictment going. It's a long indictment, really, through chapter three, verse at least twenty, maybe twenty-two, twenty-three. You could even say. And Lord willing, we'll look at that in the next couple of weeks. But this section that we're looking at today clearly is about the wrath of God against humanity. Man, we will see here, is properly in, indicted, properly accused. The section, again, is clearly about the wrath of God. Now, some of you would, would think, you know... I get it, you know, the, the wrath of God idea, um, but can't we just kind of move on beyond that? Um, you, know, I'm a, you, you know, you sound like uh, if you're going to talk about the wrath of God, you sound like one of these hellfire and brimstone preachers. And uh, I think as a society, we've moved beyond that. We want to have, have love and things like that, you know, that we want that to be the basis of our society. And, and I certainly appreciate that. And there's... Um, there's some wisdom there, um, but it's uh, something that we can't avoid when we read our Bibles. The wrath of God is a real thing because of the sin of man. I saw a video here recently where, uh, you know, on YouTube, you have your different rabbit holes that you go down. One that I like to go down is to see debates between um, uh, some speaker on campus and students. Uh, so I like to look at the university and, and, and just listen to the different arguments that are being made. And so uh, one of them recently was uh, a Christian guy who had been making a presentation and there was a girl who was at the microphone and, and she was asking the question, do you believe that I'm going to go to hell? Of course, that's a pretty emotive type question in a room full, full of people. And, and the speaker was, was kind and, and um, he, uh, you know, a solid Christian man and he was... Um, he was kind of saying, you know, well, it depends on what you mean by hell. And, you know, then she asked another question and said, well, he said, well, it depends on what you mean by that. And I appreciate that. that that's, that's fine and good. But I thought later, I thought, well, why wouldn't the answer be when, some, when someone says like that, who asked that question and who she admits that she's not a, a believer of any kind, why wouldn't you just say, well, of course. <laughs> I mean, that's what Christianity has taught for 2,000 years. And I'm a Christian. I mean, if, yeah, of course. Um, well, that's why I'm here, as a matter of fact. I'm trying to get the good news about Christ to you, um, you know, the ones that are there listening in the debate. 
So, yeah, I get it. I understand some people would say, you know, we just need to you know, avoid the idea of God's wrath. It makes us uncomfortable. Listen, it's a basic, classical doctrine of the Christian faith. And you can't avoid it in the Bible. Now, some might ask a question about how anger, uh, which Jesus equated with murder, and I'll refer to that even here a little bit later, Lord willing, uh, how can murder be a part, a part of God, anger be a part of God? And again, I hope to answer that question today. Some of you, though, would admit you long for the wrath of God because there have been so many injustices that you have seen, experienced, and, and, uh, and been part of, perhaps, in the world. And, and so it's your source of comfort that God is someday going to right every wrong and make uh, proper and, and He's going to, to justly deal with every sin, everything that has been wrong, everything, that, everything that's been wrong with you, that has been done wrong to you, how you've been done wrong, I guess is how I'm trying to say. That's, that God's wrath will come and set that right. So there, I, I get it. There's a lot of different ways to think about the wrath of God. And so today I want to think about it with just two points. It would have been a much longer sermon. I've got some others. We'll look at this some again next week, Lord willing, with a few additional points. But today, just two. First of all, let's look at the nature of God's wrath. The nature of God's wrath, which we first encounter it here in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. Now, the Greek word there is the word orge, and it, 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 it occurs 36 times in our New Testaments. Uh, a couple of interesting words you get from that word, English words that we get from that. Ogre is one. You know, the idea of this some legendary huge monster that, that eats, you know, little kids or whatever, you know, this, that, that we read about in some of our, our stories or whatever. That, that would come from that. Also, the word orgy which, of course, would be a mess of unbridled lust. Uh, comes from that word. The definition that I've sort of worked up from it and just sort of combining some various commentaries, God's wrath is His holy hostility toward evil. Just very simply that. His holy hostility toward evil. Or you could think of it as well as His unbridled antagonism against evil. But holy hostility toward evil. I use the word holy, first of all, because what that word gives us is a reminder that God's wrath is pure and proper. When God exercises His wrath, it's always proper. It's always right. It's always just. And it's always pure. Now, God is not the ogre that we might think of with, with that word. It's not like God is one of the Greek gods either who might just sort of fly off at the handle, capricious. You never know what you're going to get. Very moody. God's not like that at all. His wrath is holy. Always proper. Always pure. And then I said it's a holy hostility, meaning it is an anger that is no longer being held back, no longer being kept in check. Which is why I said you could also go with the word unbridled antagonism against evil. And then third, it's against evil. God's, 
God's not just some grumpy old man who, you know, think about it, maybe being in a home where, where maybe, maybe a father is in, a, in one room tickling his children and they're laughing and, and the grumpy, grumpy grandfather, and I am a grandfather so I can make fun of grandfathers now. The grumpy grandfather um, is in the other room and he's, and he's just, you know, frowning and, and mad because they're making so much noise. There's no sin going on there. It's, great, it's a great thing that's happening there. And he's just grumpy for no reason. That's not the way God is at all. God's just the opposite. He's generous. He is loving. He is full of smiles for His people. One of the benedictions I use, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you. That's the idea of God's smile being upon us. The 11th verse of the 16th Psalm, in your presence there's fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So His holy hostility is toward evil. He hates evil because evil destroys. Evil takes away life. And God is life and love. So is this right? I mean, or have we just sort of created this idea of a mean God? No, actually what's happened is we've created, in a sense, the wrath of God. We didn't create it, but we brought about the wrath of God. Because if there were no sin, there'd be no wrath. We're the problem. <laughs> if it weren't for us and our sin, there wouldn't be this wrath of God. D.A. Carson says it this way, if there were no sin in the universe, there would never be any expression of God's wrath. And in another place, uh, this, it was worded this way, the anger of God is not something that resides in Him by nature. It is a response to evil. It is provoked. The Bible says God is love. That is His nature. He does not love us because He sees some wisdom, beauty, or goodness in us. He loves you because He loves you. And you can never get beyond that. But God's wrath is different. It is His holy response to the intrusion of evil into His world. That's a little bit about the nature of God's wrath. It's His holy hostility toward evil. And then the second point, I want to look at the objects of God's wrath. The objects of God's wrath. And I'll give you three. First of all, the innocent people. Now, I've used the word innocent in my notes. It has quotation marks. So innocent has quotation marks around it. You know, whenever you start talking about the wrath of God, one of the first questions that everybody loves to ask, especially if there's some skepticism there involved, and, and, and no doubt some of you have wondered about this or wonder about it even today. Um, everybody loves to ask, we love to ask the question, well, what about the innocent native who lives in the bush of Africa or in the jungles of South America? Now, so you telling me that he goes to hell for rejecting a Christ that he never heard of or never even had a chance to believe in. Well, you know what happens to the innocent native on that Polynesian island or wherever he is who's never heard of Christ? That innocent native goes straight to heaven. Why? Because he has no need of Jesus. He's innocent. The problem is nobody's innocent. The, the Bible says, and, and I think Hunter was referring to it earlier in his confession of sin, all have sinned, all fall short of the glory of God. There's none righteous, no, not one. So yeah, if he truly was an innocent native in the bush of Africa or wherever, straight to heaven, but 
all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I mean, maybe maybe this idea of the innocent um, native or or just you've heard the term the the. Um, the, the noble savage, maybe you've heard that term. I think Rousseau made that term um, popular. Uh, the idea of um, the, 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 you know, the, the Indian, for example, the American Indian, or uh, you know, that kind of guy, was, those people were pure. They, they were close to God. They were, they were you know, one with nature in a sense. And when the Europeans came to the States, to the Americas, not the state, the United States, which... First arrived, weren't even really the United States. But anyway, when they when the Euro- Europeans first came to the Americas, they, they shattered all that innocence, all that purity, or whatever. That's what you sometimes hear, and which it sounds plausible, but it's just not true. There is no noble savage. There is no innocent native. I mean, you know, take one example: the the Mayas and the Aztecs. They were a violent, brutal people. Matter of fact. I mean, nothing that the Europeans would have done could have equaled what they did to surrounding peoples. As a matter of fact, when Cortez defeated the Aztecs, he didn't have any trouble recruiting uh, peoples to fight against the Aztecs because they would much rather be ruled by the Spanish than the Aztecs. So the, the idea of an innocent person, you know, the, the, the noble savage, whatever, I mean, it just doesn't exist. There's none righteous that says, Lord willing, we'll get to in Romans chapter 3. Here, it says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be made known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. So they are without excuse, it says. You know, this, this section of Scripture, it, it teaches us that people don't go to hell for rejecting a Christ they've never heard of. They go to hell for rejecting the God they have heard of. The one that they know exists deep in their heart, deep in their souls, they know it. The way Jesus phrased it in John chapter 3, verse 36, He He said, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God, the orge of God, remains on Him. Now, what does that mean, it remains on Him? It means that all of us, our rejection of God, coming into this world, shaking our fists at God, it puts us on a trajectory toward hell, eternal separation for God. Jesus is the rescue. He's the Savior. He's the one who delivers us from being on that path, having that removed from us versus having it remain on us. So it's not like people are born good and in a right relationship with God and everything's great, but then he heard of Jesus and rejected Jesus and so now he's going to hell. No, I mean, if, if that were true, if that were the case, we should never send any missionaries anywhere because then they would tell people about Jesus and they might reject Jesus and they'd be on their way to hell. No, they all, we all are on our way to hell without Christ. Somebody might say, well, you know, doesn't God only hold people accountable to what they know? You know, like a teacher or a professor 
who says, you know, before the final, okay, if it, if it wasn't in the book, it's not, you're not going to be asked a question about it. Or if, if it wasn't a part of any of my lectures, you're not going to be asked about it. That sounds reasonable. Isn't that the way God should be? Yeah. But here's the issue. Knowledge of God was covered in cl the classroom of life. <laughs> we all know. The classroom is creation. As you look around, that's, it doesn't, it doesn't, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to see God. The, the, there's got to be a God that created all of this beauty. And then just the creation of conscience. The fact that we look at something and say that's beautiful. Where do we get that idea? It's, it's internal. It's, it's inherent. There's this conscience, conscience, consciousness. We have an, an internal sense of God. Ecclesiastes says that eternity is set in our hearts. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. His invisible, His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. R.C. Sproul tells the story about speaking to a group of college students one time and he said that he was very diligent to work through his presentation giving the logical arguments for the existence of God to try to prove that God exists. And then he said, I finally just kind of stopped there at the end. I said, you know what? I don't have to give a logical argument for why God exists. You know He does. You just hate Him. Your problem isn't intellectual. It's moral. It's a matter of the will. You despise the God whom you know deep down does exist. You don't want Him telling you what to do. Which is a side note. That, that's why it's important to discipline children. To tell them what to do. You're, you're fitting their souls for heaven when, when, you, when you discipline your children and, and tell them no. Who are the objects of God's wrath? First of all, the, quote, innocent people. Second, ungodly and unrighteous people, which again, verse 18 is speaking of, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Ungodly there, uh, that term uh, comes from a Greek word that means against God. And then unrighteous, uh, also the, that the word there, a Greek word there, means against men. So the object of God's wrath are those who have sinned against God in the sense of being irreligious, irreverent, blaspheming God, ignoring God. Also, those who have sinned against men. Lying, cheating, ad adultering, murdering. Think of the second half of the Ten Commandments. You know, we think ungodly or unrighteous are, are the bad people, you know, that are out there somewhere. But the problem is that we all qualify, which leads to my third point. The third, the objects of God's wrath, number three, are, quote, again, godly and righteous people. And again, godly and, and righteous would be in quotation marks. Because ungodliness 
And unrighteousness is not just ex- external behaviors. God's law is the standard against which we are all measured. And against that, we all fall short. Think about Jesus, Sermon on the Mount, teaching us that sin is just not, uh, is not just external. He said, if you're angry with your brother, you've committed murder in your heart. If you lust after another one, you've committed adultery in your heart. And on and on we can go with this. I mean, y'all are a nice looking crowd. You look very good. You look very righteous. You're here on a Sunday morning. You got up a little bit earlier. Or at least you left the house when you could have stayed in your PJs and just be sipping coffee this morning and, you know, whatever. So you're, you, you look like a very righteous, a very godly crowd. But it's possible to be righteous looking, godly looking, and be far from God. A couple of weeks ago, I was talking with someone about our church being downtown and response was, yeah, there's a lot of people down there who need it. I mean, I understand. You know, there is more crime downtown. There's, there's more homelessness, drugs, you know, violence and so forth. But it's kind of a, it's kind of a back, back, backhanded way of saying, I'm a good person. I don't need it. I live among good people. I live in a good neighborhood. I don't really need that. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, no, not one. The best example, of course, would be in Luke chapter 15, the the parable Jesus tells of the prodigal son, sometimes referred to as the man with two sons, which really is the better way to think about it. If you don't know that particular story, here's just a little recap. Jesus tells about a man who had two sons. The elder brother, the older brother, stayed home. He obeyed his father. He had a younger son who, wanted, who was wild and wanted to sow his oats. And actually, he wanted his dad dead so that he could get the inheritance and go live on it. And so his dad, knowing that, um, I, don't know, I don't know who told him that, or if his son told him that, or the elder brother, somebody told him that. That's what he wanted. So the dad gave him his portion of the inheritance. And he did just what uh, he planned to do, which was go and squander it on, on women and, and wild living. And so as he's down and out, you know, homeless in the gutter, whatever, he, he realized, you know, I'm, I'm hungry now and, and just in a world of hurt. Maybe my dad will at least let me work on his farm and, and, and you know, be a servant in, in his, on his farm or something. And so he goes home and the father welcomes him with great love and and they they throw a huge party celebrating the return of the son the older son then he won't go in and join the party but he mopes around outside he's sulking dad tries to come out and talk some sense into him but he's bitter he felt taken for granted he was, he was sulking and he was so good, so obedient, such a hardworking, responsible guy, self-disciplined, and he was far from God. The way um, it's phrased in the book, the, the Prodigal God by Tim Keller, he writes, the focus is on the elder brother. He is fastidiously obedient to his father and therefore by analogy to the commands of God 
He is completely under control and quite self-disciplined. So we have two sons, one, quote, bad by conventional standards and one, quote, good. Yet both are alienated from the father. The father has to go out and invite each of them to come in to the feast of his love. So there's not just one lost son in this parable. There are two. Jesus does not simply leave it at that. It gets even more shocking. Why doesn't the elder brother go in? He himself gives the reason. Because I've never disobeyed you. The elder brother is not losing the father's love in spite of his goodness, but because of his goodness. Again, most of us here this morning are probably, quote, good people. Probably outwardly, you all do a really good job of measuring up to the law of God. But inwardly, we all need the Lord, just like the elder brother. We, we don't, in, in one sense, maybe what appears to be more obedience, we need grace to shock us and rock us uh, out of our complacency and our righteousness. We need, we need the grace to come in and shatter our self-illusion, our illusions of self-righteousness. One, one man said this about grace. Grace is the celebration of life, relentlessly hounding all the non-celebrants in the world. It is a floating cosmic bash shouting its way through the streets of the universe, flinging the sweetness of its cassations to every window, pounding at every door in a hilarity beyond all liking and happening until the prodigals come out at last and dance. And the elder brothers finally take their fingers out of their ears. That's what we need. We need this grace to come in and shatter our illusions of, of self-righteousness. It, it's been said that we as Christians, we need to repent of our repentance. And, and I mean, in a sense, I don't just love that phrase for a couple of different reasons. But, but I, I do appreciate what it's trying to get at which is our good deeds, like repentance, can make us very self-righteous. And it, that's what we need to be delivered from. Because self-righteousness keeps, keeps us far from God. Jesus said it's not the healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. The objects of God's wrath are those who think they're well. The godly quote, and quote, righteous people. The innocent, again, quote, innocent people need Jesus too. The ungodly, unrighteous people need Jesus too. We all need Jesus. Why? To avoid the wrath of God, the holy hostility of God to evil. And listen, if you're in Christ, those indictments that seem to be flying at, at Trump and Biden or Biden's son and all these different people that we read about in the headlines, if you're in Christ, uh, there's, there's no indictment with your name on it. Because Jesus suffered the wrath on the cross that you deserve and I deserve. God's wrath is satisfied in Christ, which is why there's no indictment for us, which is why His smile is upon us in Christ. The way we sing it in the hymn, In Christ Alone, is this, in Christ alone who took on flesh, fullness of God and helpless babe, 
this gift of love, this righteousness scorned by the ones He came to save, till on that cross as Jesus died, the wrath, the orge of God, the wrath of God was satisfied. For every sin on Him was laid here in the death of Christ. I live. I hope that's the case with you today, that you live in Christ. You find yourself under the banner of His love. May that be the case for each of us today. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for the work of the Lord Jesus. And we do stand in Him today. That is our only hope. We're so thankful that He not only died for our sins, paid that penalty for us, but He was raised to life. He's ascended into heaven and He's seated at the Father's right hand right now, ruling, reigning from on high. Oh, Lord, you have done a great thing for us. May we appreciate it anew this morning.